Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast with Kevin Harrington and Seth Green. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, one of the original sharks from the hit TV show Shark Tank, and has generated over $5 billion in TV and digital direct response sales. Seth Green is the world's first trusted authority on cutting-edge direct response marketing, a best-selling author, and the only three-time Marketer of the Year nominee. On the podcast, Kevin and Seth interview sharkpreneurs who share straight talk on what it takes to explode your business. Why do so many businesses struggle while others seem to explode overnight? Do you wish you had the secret to this type of exponential growth? Now, I've scaled more than 20 businesses to over $100 million, and it's not just luck. In my new book with Mark Tim, Mentor to Millions, you'll learn the repeatable framework I use in all my business ventures for massive success. Order at KevinMentor.com and get over $1,000 in bonuses. Head to KevinMentor.com. Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast. This is your co-host, Seth Green. Today, I have the good fortune to be joined by Trevor Schmidt of Hutch Law. Trevor has extensive experience in matters associated with intellectual property, licensing, enforcement, and strategic counseling. He works with companies to help them monetize and protect their intellectual property. He's managed domestic and international trademark portfolios for individual businesses all the way up to Fortune 500 companies. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Seth. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me on. All right. So let's go back in time a little bit. What inspired you to go to law school in the first place? You know, I was one of those weird kids that I was on a I was on a bus tour with my family going through Boston and we were going through Harvard Yard. And I looked at my parents and I was like, you know what, I'm going to be a lawyer. And, you know, as I as I grew up, as I got more exposed to it, everything reinforced that decision. And, you know, many years later, here I am. All right. And then you could have decided after law school and any area of law to work in. What attracted you? How did you get to intellectual property law? Yeah, so actually, so in my undergrad, I studied physics because I didn't want to go through undergrad and then get to law school and have studied nothing but law. So if law didn't work out, I wanted something to fall back on. But physics that, is a normal backup plan. You no, know, you just fall into it, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but with that physics background, once you get to law school, everybody's like, hey, you've got this background, you should do patent work. And so I started to study patent law, I started to do other intellectual property, and one thing kind of led to the, the other. It turned out I didn't really enjoy patent prosecution as much, but it kind of got me into this field of intellectual property. And what is your definition of intellectual property? If a lay person asks you, what's IP law? How do you answer that question? You know, I, I would say that it's really kind of the creative things that people need to protect, whether it's a patent and an invention, whether it's the name that you're going to call your company so that other people can find you in a trademark, or whether it's what you've created. So like a photograph or artwork or software, all of these things have different categories that can be protected and really intellectual properties looking for different ways to kind of protect those different, different things. All right. And then you've represented the gamut, everybody from a sole proprietor to a fortune 500 company. What's a normal, what's the average client look like to you? What's your, what's your ideal that you work on every day? Yeah. So here at Hutchlaw, we're actually focused almost exclusively on startup and growth companies. And so our focus is, is a laser focused on these companies. And so right now, we're helping just about, you know, anything that they need from startup to financing to their exit transactions. And so most of my practice now focuses on helping these companies kind of identify what to protect, when to protect it, and that ever important balance between, you know, what resources do we have and what's the best way to use those resources to, to protect the company. 
So when we talk about protecting the company, what does that mean? What are we trying to prevent from happening? Yeah, so there's a couple of different things. So some of these companies, the real value is going to be their invention. So they have come up with a unique way of doing, either doing business or they actually have a physical invention that is going to really define whether or not this company is successful. If that's the case, you got to go out there and get your patent protection you know, get a patent file, figure out what countries you're going to move into in the future and really get your protection out there. For other companies, it's going to be a software-based company. So patent may not be the best route given the, the state of the law these days. And so you're looking at copyright, you're looking at strong contracts to protect it, and then you're looking at how you're going to go out and market it. And then for all companies, it's really about making sure you protect your trademark so that other people can't really trade off who you are and what you're doing. Other than not protecting it at all, what are some of the most common mistakes you see business owners making? Yeah, for a lot of these young companies, one of the challenges being making sure that the company itself owns everything that it needs to. So you go from these loose affiliations, whether it's you know a bunch of students in a dorm room uh, to just a bunch of people who spun out of an old business and are looking to start something new. You want to make sure that everything that is being produced and created is actually funneled back into the company then so that outside investors can get interested, so that future acquirers can get interested. And so it's really making sure you've kind of crossed all those hurdles to make sure that everything gets into the company. And talk about, I mean, I'm sure you have seen things go wrong without divulging any client names. Obviously, those are confidential. But if you could tell us a couple of like the horror stories that you said, man, I wish they had come to me sooner. I could have prevented that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, kind of continuing on that theme, I think there's a lot of times where, you know, you get, you get these potential business partners and everything's great and everybody's excited and nobody really wants to talk about what would happen if things go wrong. But, you know, you really have to kind of have that focus and realize that it's not really about challenging the relationship. It's not really about, but you're really setting up the company for the greatest success. So a lot of the horror stories that I see really, revolve around that where people when things are going well don't want to have tough conversations don't want to have contracts in place don't want to really formalize the business but then five years down the road all of a sudden there's money on the table things aren't going well between the founders and all of a sudden you have a really really dicey issue so is that kind of like the concept of a marital prenup where you figure out how you're going to get divorced before you get married yeah, in some respects it is you know I, you know i think there's uh, there's a lot of similarities between the two because really and this is part of the reason you need to have good counsels because they can help you kind of identify what are all the things that you need to think about? What are the potential issues that you might face? Even though, you know what? 9% of the time, these are never going to come to fruition. But you know what? We've seen it happen in enough businesses where we know that you need to have these conversations now. So it's almost, I guess, could it be considered almost like insurance, right? We all pay our car insurance premiums every month, but we hope we don't need it. We hope it's a waste of money. We hope we never crash our car. Is protecting our intellectual property. We hope no one ever tries to steal it. And we hope the business never breaks up, but we need it just in case. Well, I mean, I, I think in some respects, maybe with intellectual property, I wouldn't use the insurance analogy, but for things like operating agreements or contracts with your partners, I would certainly think it's a fair, fair analysis. But for intellectual property, in some respects, you don't even have value unless you have those rights protected. So some, for some things like a patent, unless you have those patent rights, you're not able to exclude somebody else from doing it. So, you know, it's almost like not even having a car until you've actually filed and, and got your, your re registration in place. What do you find are some of the biggest surprises? What are the things that your clients are surprised by that they say, hey, I never knew to worry about that or I didn't know I needed that? Yeah, I think lately the conversation that I've been having with folks that maybe comes as a surprise is just the importance of data privacy. I mean, th these days, 
a lot of companies derive their value from either data, whether that's personal information or whether it's aggregated information about how people are using their software or how people are in, interacting with their service. But there are so many different regulations that impact how you can collect data, how you can use data. You know, whether you're in the United States, you know, we start to see more and more state regulations that are coming into play. But then as you move internationally, it gets even more complicated. So having those conversations with people about what they can and can't do, sometimes that, that raises some eyebrows. And with all the success you've achieved helping your clients, what's your biggest challenge now? So I think our biggest challenge is, is again, trying to be there for companies when they need it the most. So, you know, we work with startup companies and for a startup company, most of the time you have the highest amount of legal need as far as kind of getting everything set so that you can be successful down the road, but you also don't have necessarily the resources to pay for sophisticated legal work. So our challenge and what kind of what we've been focused on as a firm is really kind of helping companies navigate that. So being creative with how we work with them, making sure that they do the legal work that they need to do at the time when they can't pay for it so that we can build a relationship so that they can, you know, once they get more interesting and, and we can help them out further down the road. What are you seeing in terms of, I mean, you go, you said startups and growth companies, but those are obviously in different industries. What are some of the industries that you cover? Yeah. So our firm actually split about half and half between life sciences and, and technology-based companies. So, you know, we've got a whole group that's kind of working on new pharmaceuticals or new medical device uh, companies. And we have others that are working primarily in the software space or kind of with more advanced technologies. So my, my practice focuses more on the software and technology side and I do a lot in kind of the healthcare IT side. So seeing a lot of companies kind of working with all of this information and all of, these all of this data and records that we have out there for better medical treatment and how do we deliver this information to the people who need it on time, right on time, kind of, and without, without hassles. So that's what I'm seeing a lot more of. You've got the, you mentioned contracts between the founders. What about like the agreements we have with our customers? Yeah. So that's always important as well. And, and, you know, a lot of my practice is focused with how you license out that software. So, you know, you have software licenses that are between businesses and that can be super sophisticated and, you know, 50 pages long that's negotiated over the course of a month. Or you have to have these agreements in place that are just directly with your users, where it may be a simple, simple click-through license agreement. But I think it's important for companies to have the right documents in place, both to be efficiently not have to have a long sales process, but then also make sure you have the right protections in place for your end users and for you as you're interacting with those end users. You, you mentioned the user agreement. So I think I read somewhere in preparation for this interview that if we were to actually read every word of every user agreement we have agreed to in daily life, whether it's Apple, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you know, everywhere, um, we would, and the warranties that we get with things, it's literally a full-time job. Oh, it could be. I mean, it's for sure. I think the only people who read those are the lawyers who like are drafting them for the companies and then like the people who are litigating them down the road because they, we're just inundated with so many different end user license agreements that we're asked to, to click through on a daily basis. I don't think anybody's reading those on a, you know, even as they're signing up for things. Your passion's obvious. What do you like best about what you're doing? You know, I love working with these companies. So when we work with startup companies, when we work with founders, they're just so passionate about what they're doing. They've got this excitement they've got this vision for where they want their company to go and I, I think that is the most inspiring thing for me because it's you, you get to help these companies you get to help make sure that they can protect their baby whatever it is and, and really help them to be successful and that's my favorite part how with the fact that you're representing companies in different industries plus you've obviously got your own continuing ed 
and marketplace to keep up with? How do you keep on top of all of that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is I, I just, I read voraciously. So, I, you know, I'm constantly kind of out consuming sources of what's new in technology. Um, I'm a big fan of podcasts. So I listen to a lot of different things as far as, as, as content that direction as well. And just really, it's a matter of reading widely and, and reading often to kind of keep up with what's new. How do your clients find you? Uh, so the best way to find us is online. You know, best to find us at hutchlaw.com. But you really, for us, a lot of it is word of mouth. So we work with investors. We work with other startups. The nice thing about our, our client base is they grow and they're successful and they have an exit. But then, you know, after a while, they get tired of working for that, the, the corporation or company that bought them and they want to start something new. So they come back around and, and start up the next company. So we often have repeat players who come back to us over and over again. Well, that means obviously that they're happy with the work that you did. Talk a little, I believe you are the host of your own show, of the firm show. Talk a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, so we are the Founder Shares podcast. And so our podcast is really intent on kind of talking to these founders about what their experience has been, what motivated them to get into the business that they're doing. You know, how did they get started? What were some of the challenges that they faced? And, and you know, how did they overcome those? And what have they learned along the way? And then interspersed with that, we'll have different episodes with some legal considerations. So we've had an episode with my partner, Justin Kazersky, where we talked about just what are common mistakes that, um, that these entrepreneurial companies make. Had another one with my partner, Anna Therrington, where we talked about everything you would need to know as a startup about financing. How do we get money? What do we need to think about in addition to the size of the check? How do we prepare ourselves to be that successful? So we're really trying to balance that between the stories of the founders and then some of the legal issues that they might face. All right. Well, we greatly appreciate your time. We know it's incredibly valuable. This has been Seth Green with Trevor Schmidt of HutchLaw.com. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it, Seth. It was great. Thanks, everybody, for watching or listening. We'll talk to you or see you next time. Do you need money to fund your idea, product, or service? Are you ready to take your business to the next level but need capital to get it done? Kevin Harrington has heard more than 50,000 pitches and knows how to help you make the perfect pitch to get the funding for your entrepreneurial dream. He's distilled the process down in his perfect pitch cheat sheet, and it's yours for free. Just text PITCH to him right now at 727-888-2100. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 right now and claim your free perfect pitch cheat sheet. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 to start funding your dream today. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>